Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. And on this episode, I am happy to have Jacob Skypus. Did I pronounce that correctly? Very Skypus, well right? Skypus. Skypus. <laughs> Has anyone ever called you Jacob Skypus? I've got all sorts of weird <laughs> things in the past. I've had Sheps, Schweps, Sheppies, uh, Sheppers. Yeah. Like, I, I think there's probably been a handful of occasions in my entire life where someone's pronounced my uh, surname correctly without me uh, telling them otherwise. But nice try, Steve. That was very well done. I knew it. Skepus. I've heard it too many <laughs> times. It's all fine. I like Skypus, though. It sounds like you're a, a superhero. <laughs> Yeah, I don't mind that, Skypus. Yeah. So I can't do an Australian accent, so that was my approach at having a bit of a dig at Jacob uh, because he, <laughs> he dug me out last time. But his intro is so similar to ours anyway, so uh, he just doesn't introduce himself like I do. So I am Steve Hall, for those who don't know, who don't listen to this every week. So Jacob, if you don't know him, uh, JPS uh, Fitness is his kind of company uh, who do fantastic work, content provider. He is a actually very very good powerlifter and also a natural bodybuilder um, and we have been working together on a really cool ebook for a long long time we're just talking about how I was blown away how comprehensive parts of kind of the training area that Jacob has been going over is and I'm really impressed by it and that's something we're going to be talking about today as part of a promotion but also it's great to have Jacob on to dig at his brain because he's a very intelligent guy who, with lots of practical experience because Jacob and Lyndon from JPS are coming over on the 14th of July, so very shortly, to present with myself and Pascal all about contest prep from start to finish. Um, and hopefully you've kind of got some insights into that over the past few weeks with me on Jacob's podcast and Lyndon, um, who will be on our podcast as well. So uh, today we're going to start with actually some of the biggest mistakes you've made, Jacob, personally with contest prep and then with your clients. So I thought that was a good question you asked me. Um, and I think you'll probably have some different ones. Yeah. I didn't forget to shave uh, my armpits like you, Steve. <laughs> um, but no, thank you very much uh, for pumping up my tires. Uh, they definitely aren't as grand as what you made them uh, out to be. So thank you for that. Um, but no, uh, biggest mistakes I've made as a coach would be saying yes to people uh, when they're not ready to compete, number one. And I think you touched on that a little bit uh, in our episode, if I remember correctly. And another huge mistake I made as a coach uh, was, which wasn't a huge mistake, but it's definitely something that I've changed uh, very recently in how I approach uh, energy expenditure. So previously, I would have people perform cardio uh, when I first started coaching contest prep athletes, and I would get them to just do a certain duration at a certain intensity, for example, 6.5 kilometers an hour for 60 minutes. Uh, and as the contest prep went on and they hit stalls or, or whatever the case may be, uh, and we needed to increase cardio, I would just increase either duration, intensity, or the frequency of the cardio. Now, that was problematic uh, for a number of reasons. But from there, I then started giving people a, a calorie target uh, to hit in a cardio session. So people started to try to hit sort of 300, 400 calories in a cardio session and same kind of situation. I didn't mind how they uh, achieved that, uh, but we would increase the number of calories they expended uh, through their cardio once they hit sores and plateaus. However, 
over the last 18 months, uh, maybe a little bit longer, I've been having people track their total daily energy expenditure uh, via daily step counts. And this has been a real game changer for me because it doesn't just look at an acute window of energy expenditure, such as the cardio workout itself. It actually takes into account uh, the entire uh, day's worth of activity. And we know that when people uh, diet down, they lose body fat, uh, and they're eating less uh, than their body needs, they start to see metabolic adaptation and primarily a downregulation in their non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So by looking at daily step count, uh, we can more accurately monitor and control uh, energy expenditure, and that's been a really big game changer. So the big mistakes for me as a coach, uh, I guess in hindsight, were that uh, I didn't really understand uh, energy in and energy out in the level of detail that I do now, um, and having a more comprehensive and I guess uh, better understanding of uh, energy balance. Uh, I've seen a lot better results uh, since doing that. Some other mistakes I've made uh, is the whole, you know, telling people to drink alkaline water, um, you know, cutting their sodium, uh, all those sorts of stupid things that we uh, see on the you know bodybuilding.com forums uh, for, from competitors um, who don't really know much about physiology or how to peak natural competitors. Um, so I did all of that, and since then, my peaking approach is very different also. Uh, so yeah, that would be the big mistakes as a coach. As a competitor, my biggest mistake was probably when I competed uh, back in 2013, uh, when I started a flexible diet uh, for the first time in a contest prep, because the previous season, I used a, a quote unquote clean eating approach where I had a meal plan and I was just reducing my portion sizes of my carbon fat sources as the diet uh, ensued. And the following year, I learned about flexible dieting, thanks to Alan Aragon, Lyle McDonald, uh, Lane Norton, and I thought, this is fantastic. I can eat ice cream every day. So for my nine-month contest prep, I ate ice cream every single day. And that was probably a really silly decision because I was hyper-food focused. The ice cream didn't fill me up at all. Um, it made me feel hungrier after I ate it. It wasn't very uh, satiating. And I, yeah, could have made more of those calories had I have chosen something that was more energy sparse, higher in volume, more nutrient-dense. Uh, and that was a really big mistake because I didn't understand what flexible dieting was. I thought it was just a free-for-all. As long as I hit those uh, three numbers, then I was good. Uh, when in fact, I now know better and understand that flexible dieting is more about the mindset and being able to include a variety of foods. But in a contest prep, knowing when to include uh, you know, those quote-unquote naughty foods uh, and when you need to tighten the reins a little bit and make uh, decisions that ensure your food is fuel uh, that is supporting uh, your current goals, which are to be as full as possible, perform as best as you can, uh, and really just to survive uh, the onslaught of uh, side effects that come with uh, semi-starvation. So yeah, there you go, Steve. Nice. I think actually one of those mistakes uh, were in line with one of mine, although it was my own personal one, where I had no awareness of NEAT. And so I was just being super duper lazy. And then my cardio skyrocketed because I was just being a lazy asshole most of the time. <laughs> so I think that's a big one for people to take away. It makes a huge difference because like we know for your kind of total metabolic rate, your total calorie burn for the whole day, NEAT is a big thing. 
and you can control that to a certain extent. So that's really cool. And then, yeah, with the, it's kind of like the food palatability reward hypothesis, kind of all those tasty foods that make you more hungry. I remember for, did you do ever do Warden Farms? I did a lot of Warden Farms in my first oh, prep. Oh man, I was so bloated from <laughs> the stupid amounts of Warden Farms that I was there. And that's a really good point. I was actually at one uh, point in the contest prep uh, eating the like fake peanut butter out of a oh, tub no. because it was just so nice. And man, the distension and the bloating that I had after that, I was like, oh this is the worst it's like my stomach was full but empty at the same time very unique experience and something i wouldn't recommend to anyone of sound mind have you ever done protein fluff i did not in a contest prep i've okay. done it before um and that's a really weird thing it's really um, weird kind of works but it's really weird it's really it's a really strange thing bodybuilders are pretty nice swear. <laughs> yeah go for it we're I explicit swear on my podcast we have mike you know, on all the time you're, he swears uh, you're british you're very uh prim and proper steve <laughs> um yeah like bodybuilders are pretty uh fucking unique individuals um <laughs> we we do a lot of uh crazy and whack shit just to uh deal with all of the issues both the physiological and the psychological that we face when we're uh trying to improve our body comp um so the protein fluff, that's that's a strange concoction. Yeah. And if you were to tell any uh, registered dietitian or uh, psychologist that that's what you ate to feel full, uh, they would probably uh, yeah ensure that you uh, had some counseling because you're uh, on the uh, borderline of disordered eating, if not eating, eating disorders. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it, the description you said kind of being full but not full, like you feel distended and bloated but you're not like, satiated. That's exactly what protein fluff does. It just fills you with air. It's just, oh, you just, it, there's one thing I ended up leaving some of it during prep even though I was starving. I was just like, I can't eat anymore because my stomach is hurting. So um, yeah, anyway, we're going on to our topic for today's podcast, which is navigating the digging phase. So first of all, I'd love to hear kind of what the digging phase is and mm -hmm. um, what that really entails. Because I think, I don't know, some people might get that misconstrued. So first of all, go through the digging phase, potentially use the brilliant analogy you had um, all about kind of digging for gold. I'd love to hear that um, and we can move forward yep. from there. Yeah, awesome. So I guess to lay the foundations of uh, and a bit of context as to what digging phase is before we define it and then give some uh, qualifications to how somebody can tell if they're digging or not. Um, in a contest prep, when we start, um, fat loss should be very, very easy, quite linear, almost like maximal results for minimal effort kind of thing. Like you can get away with a lot more when you're a bigger person, um, you know, the relative uh, energy deficit comes from greater absolute amount of calories. Uh, so you can be a little bit more uh, liberal with your tracking. You don't have to perform as much cardio. Obviously, you don't have all the hunger and stuff. So phallus is quite easy at the start of a contest prep, especially if you've primed yourself, uh, plug for the Revive Stronger ebook, the primer phase. Um, phallus should be pretty uh, smooth sailing out of the gates. And then as you go through the contest prep, there comes a point when shit just gets harder and you can't uh, get the same rate of loss 
Uh, all those metabolic adaptations start to rear their ugly head. So hunger, downregulation you need, you know, you're not rising with the morning sun anymore. So sex hormones uh, and uh, reproductive system, uh, you know, libido, all that kind of stuff plummets, you're hyper food focused, training performance suffers. Uh, you're just lethargic, sleep is disturbed, you're irritable, hangry, all that kind of stuff. Um, and this is what is known as the digging phase. So in essence, the digging phase has uh, two metaphorical derivatives. So number one, you're digging through the final layers of body fat, uh, searching for gold. And I'll explain the analogy in a minute. And the gold is essentially your target physique and look on stage. Uh, but the second uh, derivative of the digging phase is that you are digging deep mentally now. Um, this is otherwise known as the grind or embracing the suck. Um, and this is the overwhelming feeling of being physically and just psychologically beat down, right? Um, so put simply, a digging phase starts when a, a competitor uh, endures a combination of like extreme relative weight loss from their starting point and a long period of energy uh, restriction. So the analogy that I like to use is that it's akin to digging for gold and the soil, which is your body fat, near the surface uh, you know, of the earth would be soft and quite easy to break down. This is just like uh, the start of a contest prep. You know, as soon as you start digging at the start, at that you know body fat, it's quite easy to remove. It requires nothing more than a shovel and a bit of effort, which is just your diet and training. As you dig deeper and deeper towards the gold, uh, the gold, sorry, the soil just starts getting harder, firmer, more difficult to remove, and more importantly, the risks of the walls and the structures around you collapsing in on you uh, increase the deeper you dig, right? So the lower you go, uh, yeah, shit can fall down, the infrastructure might not be as sturdy, all that kind of stuff. Um, and also, the longer you dig, the more fatigued you become, which is not ideal because you still need to get to the gold, but you get tired, uh, and the greater the likelihood that you burn out and give up. Uh, so yeah, that's the analogy. Uh, but most importantly, I, I pieced together some criteria um, that the individuals who read the ebook can use to assess whether or not they're digging. Um, and that is that they've lost more than 5% of their body weight since starting the contest prep. They've been dieting for longer than 10 weeks in hypocaloric conditions. They've uh, seen greater than 20% reduction in their calories since they started a prep and more than a 20% increase in daily energy expenditure or cardio since they began the prep. So if you've done three or four of those things, uh, then it's a pretty high chance that you're going to be digging. Um, you might not even be that lean, but just by doing those things in and of itself uh, could mean that your fat loss progress will start to slow down, and it's just going to get uh, significantly harder and harder to see uh, progress from there. So that is the digging phase defined, uh, the analogy, and then uh, the criteria that you can use to assess whether or not you're digging. I love the analogy, by the way. You kind of just like, that was the analogy. And I was like, that was a really good analogy because it wasn't just like stage one analogy. There was more thinking behind, obviously, the deeper you go, the more fatigued you are. It's not just about the soil and everything. So I actually really, really like that analogy. I think it's a very good one. So you should be, that's like a, a very high level mic analogy. So you should be very proud of that, Jacob. I think it's a really good one. Yes. Um, one day I will teach Mike. <laughs> I don't no, know when that will be. No, never, never. Not, <laughs> not, in, my lifetime, not in my lifetime. Um, yeah, no, I take a lot of motivation um, and inspiration from the way that Mike conveys the message. Um, I think analogies are a great teaching tool. So where possible, I try to be as yep. creative as I can to yeah, make sure that people understand 
um, you know, what we mean by certain things. And that's why defining um, and giving classification and criteria to certain things is a good idea mm-hmm. um, because when people say, oh, yeah, I'm digging, um, yeah, but are you? You know, go through that checklist. You can see whether or not you're, you know, objectively, um, you know, having a tough time. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And actually something very related to this um, is body fat set points or settling points. And I think part of the kind of thing people obviously know is as you get further away from your body fat settling point, that homeostasis, as if it was a magnet, it's kind of drawing stronger and stronger, actually, as you move away from it, not as you will move closer to it. Uh, and with the digging phase that's kind of the point at which you're really getting below that like people think about a settling point and they think it's like a a certain number but more so a range so i guess it's getting through that range is the soft soil and then towards the end of that digging phase or towards the actual digging phase is getting through that layer which is like the lower end of your settling point Do you want to kind of talk through that a little bit yeah 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 so you pretty much uh summed up homeostasis there um but body fat settling point theory and you know metabolic hormonal adaptation are very much um you know aligned with one another um and can help us understand why our rate of fat loss slows down and why we experience stalls in in a contest prep also how the changes in our physiology uh should dictate uh, alterations in our diet and the way that we train uh, when we're at lower and lower body fats below our settling point and why the phase uh, the digging phase is harder compared to previous phases uh, which brings about a number of different challenges so yeah i think uh, you did a great job in sort of uh, explaining uh, homeostasis there um, but it's very much like how the body would respond and adapt uh, to the stress of sun exposure right so when we're first exposed to the sun's UV rays uh, for a little bit longer than what we have done in the past, uh, the magnitude of that uh, you know, sun exposure is a stress, uh, and it's a stress on the skin because they've not yet adapted to deal with that amount of UV radiation, right? So if the exposure exceeds your previous adapted levels, the skin will become damaged, you get burnt. I can't imagine Steve getting too much of a tan when he goes out in the sun, uh, despite wearing a nice uh, revealing tank top there. Is there a little bit of nipple I can see? Almost. <laughs> no um, nip slips here. We're, uh... No nip slips. Not in Britain. The queen will smite you. Um, however, you know, with rest and recovery, when you go in the shade, you you know have some aloe vera. I'm sure you are pretty stocked up on aloe vera, Steve. All over. Um, you, all over. <laughs> do you moisturize, Steve? You do. You're a man who moisturizes. I can tell. Um, you know, and you spend some time away from the sun. Your body will heal, uh, and you start to obviously see changes in the pigmentation of your skin. So the next time you go to cope with that stress, uh, the UV rays uh, won't uh, be as uh, damaging uh, to your skin. So, and you get a nice tan, right? So that's uh, the biochemical response to a stress. Uh, and this adaptation process occurs in like every single physiological function of the structures within the body, such as our fat cells. Uh, so yeah, the body fat settling points are super important as is homeostasis. And uh, yet yeah, the body is only concerned with two things really from an evolutionary uh, biological priority uh, and that is preservation of self and the current genetic material that you have so like food water shelter warmth rest all those sorts of uh, needs uh, that we have and then the continuation of genetic material which is like reproducing right Uh, so winning a pro card getting a plastic trophy 
uh, you know, first place, social media glory and like straighter glutes, your body doesn't really give a shit about that. It wants to preserve itself. And as a result of that, um, yeah, not only do we see fat loss get harder and harder, but we, we see a number of symptoms start to really crop up uh, in the digging phase, um, which is the body's uh, defense mechanisms essentially forcing you to stop doing what you're doing and trying to bring you back uh, towards uh, your body fat selling point. So you'll get hungrier, you'll experience like brain fog, lack of concentration, you're going to be sleeping, uh, not a lot, and it's going to be very disturbed. You'll probably be peeing all the way through mm-hmm. the night. Uh, you're not going to have any libidos, so you know Charlotte would be very mad when Steve's in a contest prep because you know there's not a lot of action happening in the bedroom. Uh, you become really food focused. Uh, you experience like mood disturbances, and your personality changes quite a lot. People get like hangry and really grumpy. They're not their usual self uh, in a contest prep, and uh, if they're an angry person, that kind of gets magnified. And if you're a quiet person, that kind of gets magnified. So it kind of magnifies. Um, your current like personality traits per se, um, your performance turns to crap in the gym. So you're just not going to be as strong, able to lift the kind of weights that you did in the off season or even at the start of the prep. Um, you're going to have less fat tissue around the joints, uh, you know, cause fat is kind of like lubricating on the joints. Uh, so you just experience like more like aches and pains and joint soreness. Uh, you're potentially not going to go to the toilet as much. I'm trying to remember all the other ones Our females lose their menstrual cycle, um, and you just start to really, you know, question like, why am I doing this? Because it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> this sucks. Why am I doing it? And, you know, um, it can be really hard to continue the grind, um, when or you're feeling all of these really absurd and unusual things. And you, that's why bodybuilders, you know, uh, generally pretty crazy folk because, uh, they have the ability to sort of embrace tolerate uh and thrive in these kind of conditions uh and this is why like a contest prep is not something that people should take on lightly um because it is quite an extreme sport uh just like uh you know playing football if you were to run around in a football field you know it's very likely that you can uh you know do your acl um and therefore you know get injured uh in the same vein it's like although bodybuilding is very unique in the sense that it's a closed sport it's self-paced and it's very static. Um, some some just definitions around the type of sport that it is. Um, that's not to say that it's without risk. Uh, so the risks um, and the side effects are very real, and they sort of start to really present themselves in the digging phase, which is why we should take this phase a little bit more seriously, uh, give it a lot more attention, which is what I've tried to do in the ebook, and be, be very, very thorough with how I've gone about uh, addressing these things. So it's not just a, hey, you know, when your fat loss stalls, cut your calories down and you know bring calories up. I really tried to make it, um, you know, super practical and give some extremely pragmatic tips and advice for people just to deal with the things uh, that they're going to be experiencing and to ensure them. Uh, that it's okay to feel these things and it's I feel kind of weird saying this uh, because it's not normal but it is normal in the digging phase Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and that's what we sign up for so when we sign up to be a competitive bodybuilder and have striated glutes you know with physiology as Lyndon says uh, for every gimme there's a gotcha and when you push the body uh, to its limits uh, you have to force your mindset to, you know, stay with your body in that sense. Um, and that's really challenging uh, for all the aforementioned reasons. Excellent. Yeah, I think it's it's something that seasoned competitive bodybuilders know. They kind of almost desire this digging phase. Mm-hmm. And, they, um, and some people 
And I've had clients who are like, why don't I feel like like this yet? Kind of like, shouldn't I be feeling bad yet? And I'm like, we want to, you're going to feel it. It's going to happen. And a lot of the things we're talking about and have talked about already is kind of preventing it for as long as mm. possible. Because if you can get as close to that goal as possible without feeling having to dig hard, then you're putting yourself in a much better position to succeed. So, yeah, and totally. like we've talked about, like rate of loss, um, having a primer phase, but then in this phase, what are some of the strategies you talked about in the book in terms of like making adjustments to training, cardio, diet, or even routine and habit? What kind of the strategies that you're kind of expressing within this phase? Yeah. So first I'll talk about more of the super pragmatic and people will think that this is really boring, but it can't be overstated. This is the most important part of surviving and thriving in the digging phase and that is to create daily and weekly routines almost to the point where you micromanage your time um, and i'll explain why in a minute uh, you really need to focus on executing your plan and you need to have more consistency in everything that you do and a little bit less uh, variation uh you know from meal to meal day to day week to week and even you know if your digging phase sort of extends out into months uh so we need to remember that when you know competitors are hungry, they're tired, they're lethargic, they're going to experience more fatigue and they're more likely to make a bad decision uh, irrespective of how many choices they have. Uh, so that's why you know flexible dieting for some people, if they just have macro targets, um, can be problematic because they think, oh, how many meals can I fit into this? And I really liked the analogy you used uh, on our show, Steve, which is that uh, competitors start to play macro Tetris. Uh, they'll really try to fit all these delicious foods into their um, macros, make them really delicious, super creative. Um, but that's not ideal because the more time you spend uh, thinking about food, number one, you're going to only heighten your food focus, which is not something you want when you're going to be experiencing insatiable hunger. Number two, you have to make more decisions and the likelihood of you making a bad decision is increased given the amount of fatigue that you're experiencing. So that's otherwise known as digging fatigue. But number three, there's a lot of stress that comes with making decisions and people often forget about this. Uh, so the more decisions we make, like the more cognitive effort that requires and that's a stress. Uh, if we make a bad decision, we then stress about that. And yeah, we're not worried about, um, you know, trying to eat foods that are super tasty at this point. We need to eat for utility and ensure that we're just executing the plan. So some really important things to do in the digging phase uh, to create a daily routine. And I know you do this with the Revive Stronger Athletes, where it's like literally every hour they plan out what they're doing, when they're eating, when they're training, all those kind of things. And I think that's a really, really useful strategy. Uh, I, I really recommend people when they're digging, um, have macro targets, uh, create a meal plan to meet those macro targets, and then get off my fitness pal. Don't track, don't, you know, play around with food choices, try to keep your food as consistent as possible, as much as possible, and just eat to your meal plan. So weigh and measure your food as per usual, but just eat to your meal plan. And you might even want to have like two meal plans that are on rotation. For example, you might have dinner that could be like chicken or fish, but it equates to the same uh, you know, macros, and you just sort of rotate like that. But again, less decisions, the better, because you need to build and maintain momentum uh, you know, from hour to hour, day to day, um, you know, so that you have more accuracy 
reliability and predictability uh, in not only the decisions you make, but also the outcomes that result uh, from those decisions. So that's extremely important as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the habit and routine mm. goes past even just diet. What about kind of training steps for me was a big one. Like if I didn't get into a certain habit of achieving those, do you extend that kind of the idea of the routine past just to say mm-hmm. a diet? Everything. From the minute you wake up, uh, from the minute you go to bed, uh, I do recommend having uh, a very, very consistent lifestyle at this point. Um, The more uh, you have flexibility uh, and variation, uh, that's not necessarily going to be beneficial. Um, And what I defined in the ebook was consistency. And we want to have consistency in our choices. So uh, there's, uh, you know, some concepts related to choice architecture that I sort of dive into. Um, But consistency by definition is just the steadfast adherence to principles, a course or form of action, and the compatibility and uniformity um, of the things that you're doing towards what you want to achieve, right? Uh, So basically what that will mean is that Things should stay mostly the same um, and share the same properties and components of like what it is you want to achieve, right? Which is getting lean and reaching the gold and your t- your target uh, stage physique. Uh, so that means for a physique athlete, it means unwavering compliance to their plan, uh, <laughs> ensuring that their behaviors that influence uh, outcomes will contribute in a very positive manner towards developing the physical and mental qualities necessary to succeed on stage and anything that is inconsistent um, should be avoided. So, you know, decision making is quite a complex thing and I I don't know uh, everything about it, but um, what I will say is whether it's diet, whether it's cardio and the way that you get your steps in, uh, whether it's how you meal prep, when you meal prep, you know, your nighttime routine, uh, all those sorts of things, you should be t- ticking boxes by this stage. It should be, have I eaten my meals to meet my calories? Have I done my steps to meet my da- t- daily target step count? Have I got my training sessions in? Have I done my posing? Am I sleeping well? And am I, you know, trying to keep everything else in my life, um, you know, at least in a point where it's not going backwards. So things like your relationships, uh, spending some time with loved ones, uh, you know, whether it's work, uh, you know, social life, as hard as that may be, you need to find ways to sort of keep those things around for as long as possible, provided uh, they don't expose you to more decisions that could potentially be inconsistent to the goal of competing, right? So you want to socialize, uh, well, you might not be able to go out for beers with your friends or a meal with your friends, but you might give them a phone call and say, hey, how are you doing, for example? And you might do that on the same day every week. Um, so I think, again, we need to be consistent and all of our behaviors at this point because we're really committed to achieving excellence on the bodybuilding stage should be targeted towards uh, getting that result that we want. And we should start to trim off the fluff um, as much as possible less variation, less flexibility, and really ensure that uh, we're doing everything we can uh, to get the most out of the contest prep. Because if you don't, as you know, Steve, and a competitor comes off stage and they haven't given it their all Mm -hmm. and there are things that they would do differently and they have regrets, that's the worst feeling, especially when you put in months and months, potentially years of really hard work and you don't get the look that you want or you don't get the placing that you know you were capable of getting uh, because of the decisions that you made within your contest prep. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's great because it comes back to the old saying of um, fail, fail to plan, plan to fail. It, it's such a, mm. a true statement and it, it couldn't be Fuck, more I true. I delete that entire section and just put that. <laughs> just write, just want this one phrase. Covers everything. 3,000 words, that freaking section. <laughs> you just summed it up. Yeah, so pretty much what you're saying is, you know, just plan things. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. This is my unfortunate... I don't know if it's a skill. I just abbreviate everything in life. <laughs> Again, simplicity is very important. Occam's razor uh, for anyone who's interested in understanding why simplicity is often the best choice uh, when faced with complex uh, decisions. Check that out. Excellent. And I absolutely agree. I think the routine in everything, even down to like posing, so because everything takes energy. But if you have a plan and it becomes a habit, you just get into that routine. It's just like you said. Yeah, I think I've got ticking boxes. Posing. You should you should be pot posing daily by this point. I'd say, um, if not every second day, depending on how experienced you are. And on posing, actually, just because I think it's an interesting thing that not many people talk about. Use your recommendations. Uh, smaller sessions, more frequent, longer, less frequent. What do you like there? Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, so, I'm a big fan of adhering to the principles. Um, and I apply those principles uh, to everything that I do in life. So specificity and variation, right? When you're in the off season, uh, you probably don't need to pose um, Just unless you're IG. really, really bad. Um, yeah, for IG pretty much. <laughs> um, as you get into contest prep, it's kind of nice to see your progress and see how your body's shaping up and how it's comparing to the last time you were at that body fat percentage. If you're noticing new tissue in places, it's fun. It could keep you motivated, all those sorts of things. So I think some posing's a good idea, maybe once, twice a week in the early phases of contest prep. Um, but then the principle of specificity dictates that we get specific adaptations to the imposed demands. And we need to remember that uh, you know, posing is a skill. So if we want to get good at any skill, we need exposure to that skill and we need practice and repetition. Uh, so uh, given that not only we need the skill, but we also need uh, some very, very minor fitness qualities to be able to pose like we need to be able to hold those static contractions uh you know for quite some time depending on how many people are in the division that you're competing in um and how you know much the judges are going to be scrutinizing you sometimes you'll compete and be on uh, stage for less than five minutes mm -hmm. um sometimes you could be on for 10 minutes depending on how big the lineup is um and you better learn how to hold your poses for a long period of time so what i do is uh to speak more specifically to your point uh, I will have my competitors pose uh, very in uh, for very short durations, uh, quite frequently as they get into you know the middle stages of a prep, uh, potentially the start of the digging phases. Uh, but then as they get closer and closer to competition, I will try to emulate a competition day. So what they're going to be doing on stage. Um, and how long they might be potentially uh, on stage holding a specific pose so they can become conditioned to that. And when they get on stage, they're not shaking, cramping, and feeling all those things because, again, there are some minor adaptations that we need to have uh, not only in the skill but also you know, phys physical qualities of holding those poses um, that I think we should really try to um, you know, make concrete as we get closer to, to the stage. Yeah, I think it's, I've definitely been on stage and my legs had been shaking like a leaf, like terribly. It's always legs. They're the most difficult ones to keep switched on, like in the front relaxed. Like the upper body is not too hard, hard, but keeping those quads on, especially if you just, I don't know, you have, I didn't have a great mind muscle connection. I 
partly down well, you to didn't really have any, not big uh, quads. <laughs> to connect your mind to not Nothing. much muscles to you, so man i'm just roasting you you've really got to up your banter game steve it's true you though i didn't have much quads so <laughs> <laughs> your quads are looking really good you're um you're making me very angry and very jealous because you're just making all these gains and i've been doing all this powerlifting and i'm getting <laughs> really like not small but i don't have the inflammation that like i'm not just carrying around like that little bit of extra tissue in all those nice places like the delts and uh, the hamstrings like i usually would um and it doesn't feel good and i'm seeing you make all these gains and i'm just like you motherfucker you're strong as hell at the moment though to be fair so well thank you thank you very, i'm stronger strong. than you That's very all that much stronger than me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, you don't do anything less than like five reps. All no. I've been doing is freaking sets of – I did squats tonight, six sets of one. And I was like, come on, man. I just want to freaking do some bicep curls. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> – Yeah, anyhow. I've done – I don't know how many sets of bicep curls this week, but it's over 15, that's for sure. <laughs> I've done zero. <laughs> but My this is specificity, right? It's decaying. Yes, yeah, specificity, super important. Right. It goes back to the posing. It's like I think as you get closer to the stage – um, it's a good idea to set dedicated posing sessions where you try to, you know, go through all of the symmetry round and the mandatory poses, um, you know, all in succession, really tidy up your transitions, um, and hold the poses for a duration, each pose for a duration uh, that is going to be consistent with what you're going to have to do on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, because it gives you just really good practice. You can build confidence because you know you've done it yeah. before and it's not a shock. Like you get on stage and you're just doing it and it should feel a lot more natural. Uh, and if you're a little bit less stressed about your posing, um, well, then that's a good thing for obviously yeah. how you look uh, because we know that uh, as we get close to the stage, uh, stress plays a really big lo- role in um, obviously, uh, you know, water retention and our overall, uh, you know, look. Yeah. And I think even like for natural bodybuilding, posing is, I think, relatively simple. Whereas you look at some categories like bikini and I'm just like, oh, man. oh that's another level. That amount, like posing is a huge I, percentage. I refer that shit out. Yeah, you have to. I don't want to know about it. My bikini girls ask me, you know, can you help me with my posing? I'm like, nope, go to this person. They say, hey, you know, what color bikini should I get? Nope, don't want to hear it. Get out of my face. Um, you know, I just, it's a different ball game, man. The cosmetic mm. side of uh, bikini uh, fitness models and all those sorts of things, that's just a completely different kettle of fish. I'm a physique coach yeah. uh, in the sense that I will get your physique to where it needs to be. Uh, bodybuilding I can do because it's quite simple. It's like, here's your budgie smugglers, you know, rub on some dream tan and off you go, slap them on the bum as they're walking on stage and, you know, power to your brother. Um, but with the bikini uh, competitors, it's like, you know, they have the heels, they have all these different, you know, sparkles and shit on their things that I don't even, you know, want to know how much they cost or where to get them. Um, you know, so I have people that I try to refer to and yeah, it is a completely different kettle of fish, um, that I think deserves a lot more attention. Um, especially for girls who, you know, want to excel in those divisions, like those things really matter. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And I think even for the met, like for the men's bodybuilding, it just comes down to that habit, that routine you get into like a, just, you just can do it. You don't need a mirror. You don't need anything. You can just hit those poses. You can always tell the competitors yep. who know how to pose and they're confident Correct. and it shows off on stage. And, and that's a really good point. So another thing that I do as we get closer to stage is, you know, in the early phases of the prep, I'll let my athletes, so we do group posing at JPS um, and we've got uh, mirrors up uh, in the facility where we do our posing. So I'll let the athletes face the mirror 
while I sort of sit there and, um, you know, give them some feedback. Um, but as we get close to the stage, I then flip them around they're not looking at the mirror and they always ask, Oh, can I just look at the mirror to see how this, I'm like, no, you need to learn how to yeah. hold this without being able to see yourself. And that's also really important. And again, something that uh, becomes more of a priority the closer we get to stage. Absolutely. Cool. So some of the things I wanted to finish up on, I think that are really important with this phase that you spoke about was some of the tools of assessment. You kind of went over some objective measures and then some yeah. subjective ones and then like a priority hierarchy because when you get to this stage, like we've already talked about, your rate of loss is slowing down and it's mm -hmm. almost like fluctuations on the scale can actually be a minefield for some physique competitors, especially like when you're mm -hmm. getting down this lean. Exactly. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. So you actually read all my sections. I'm really impressed because they were long. They were really, <laughs> really freaking long. Um, so yeah, when it like I kind of go on these little uh, intellectual explorations, for lack of a better word, when like I was you know writing about measurements, I'm like, I really want to know more about what measurements are, what data is, what it means, how we should use it uh, to inform decision making and all those sorts of things. So there's some really cool ideas and concepts that I've sort of uh, picked up along uh, the years of coaching uh, that have thrown into the ebook that I think will just help people really conceptualize what data is um, and what measurements actually provide us. And I might as well talk a little bit about it now um, because we need to understand that uh, measurement techniques uh, just providing data, right? Um, and we'll talk about the types of data that we get um, and the ones that we should be monitoring, managing. But a really important uh, concept that I've uh, stumbled upon, uh, you know, in the last couple of years that has helped me understand um, our assessments and, and how we should go about using them is that the data they provide is nothing more than what it is. It's raw and it exists in isolation. So, you know, if we get our scale weight, for example, um, that just tells us what we weigh, you know, our relationship with gravity, uh, and it has no connection or relationship to anything else. Um, but then if we look at, you know, uh, getting multiple pieces of data across different variables, such as say we're now collecting our scale weight over the week, and we also assess our calorie intake over the week, um, and we can now start to observe patterns and relationships between these two variables, right? Um, and that can help us kind of determine like a link or a connection um, and if there's any relationship, whether it's causal um, or correlated, whatever the case may be. Um, and, that, and that's really important. And that gives us information. Um, so you might see that as your calorie intake goes down over the week, your scale weight goes down. It's like, ah, oh, cool. We know that if we eat less calories, we lose weight. Uh, the next level from there, uh, this is, by the way, the data information, knowledge, wisdom, hierarchy. So I'm not just uh, coming up with all this shit on my own. It's a, it's a concept um, that I sort of found in uh, epistemology research and one of those explanations I had. Um, so the next level is knowledge, and that's where we uh, co collect information over time, patterns arise, um, and we have many uh, variables, you know, piecing them together, otherwise known as triangulation. So when we get multiple different uh pieces of data and assessment tools to bear about one outcome. So if we're looking at changes in body weight uh, and we start tracking, say, calorie intake, carbohydrate intake, um, you know, daily step count, all of those things, and we can start to see um, that changing one things can allow us to predict with a higher level of confidence what's going to happen next. Um, and then the sort of the final level of that is wisdom, right, which embodies more than knowledge. Um, and that's 
understanding the fundamental principles within the body of knowledge pertaining to that thing, right? So it's like if you want to lose weight, you understand that there's thermodynamics, energy balance, metabolic adaptation, um, you know, that carbohydrates, you know, bring in more water, um, you know, per gram than the other macronutrients, which can influence your scale weight. The menstrual cycle influences scale weight. So all these sorts of things. So it's just a really broad uh, and very thorough understanding of like what you're measuring. So the types of data we have, uh, there's four. We have objective, which is like the observable, very, um, you know, measurable stuff uh, that we can use through testing methods such as our scale weight. And then we have our subjective data, which is from the athlete's point of view. So, you know, if they're feeling hungry, if they're feeling tired, that would be subjective information. Then we have quantitative, which is all about numbers or, you know, units of analysis. And then we have uh, our qualitative data, which is like descriptive. Uh, it's the words that we use to describe a certain thing. Uh, so when we're looking at a contest prep, we need to use both objective and subjective measures. So the objective measures are obviously our calorie macro intake, daily step count, our training performance, so uh, our training volume, uh, relative intensities, the weights we use, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, our hours in bed, um, which is a really good proxy uh, for rest. Our scale weight, obviously, our visuals, so our progress pictures uh, or videos, our girth measurements. People can use a DEXA, but I really don't – I think that that's uh, too beneficial in a contest prep. And you could get like hormonal panels done uh, as well, blood markers, all those sort of things. They're objective, right? Your subjective measures, again, are the descriptive things from the athlete's point of view, would be sleep quality, so how well they slept, how rested they feel, uh, their hunger their food focus, how stressed they're feeling, their energy levels, their fatigue and soreness, like their mood state, whether they're irritable, uh, all those sorts of things, their libido, whether they feel like, you know, getting it on with their partner, um, you know, their, their uh, relationships, all of those sorts of things. So they would be the subjective measures. And when it comes to how we should prioritize uh, measurements in the contest prep, uh, especially the digging phase. In early phases of contest prep, it's it's fine to use the scale weight um, as a, pr a primary proxy uh, for fat loss because it's going to be super predictable, at least after the first week of a diet, right, where you might see all that like glycogen, uh, gut residue, all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, lead to massive scale weight reduction. But after that, it should be pretty consistent, pretty linear. That's fine. Move on. But once we get to the digging phase, we need to remember that bodybuilding – is all about how you look. Nobody wins a pro card holding up their scale weight, their DEXA scan, you know, how much they lift, anything like that. It's about how you look and, you know, you're getting assessed on uh, some, you know, criteria. So your conditioning, your muscularity, symmetry, your proportion, stage presence. So we need to keep that in mind when we uh, use our measurement tools to inform our decisions in a contest prep. So number one is your visuals. Right, because that's what the judges are assessing you on. Uh, so that's pretty self-explanatory. But I think learning how to take, um, you know, a very good, uh, honest—I I don't really like that word—but people understand what it means. Um, you know, photo of how you look. So having, you know, natural lighting, then your phone or camera, and then standing, uh, you know, behind that uh, to assess your conditioning. So going through, you know all the uh, symmetry poses to see uh, whether from week to week or assessment to assessment, uh, there's new lines popping up. Uh, you're looking a little bit, you know, more tapered through the waist, uh, seeing some new striations, all those sorts of things. Uh, that's our number one priority. Now, an important consideration for that is you will look worse and worse 
uh, as you get into the digging phase. Like when you're truly digging, you don't look great. You're going to feel flat, depleted. You're going to have less muscle glycogen. If you're really, really stressed, sleeping shit, like I know you experienced uh, edema, Steve, mm-hmm. um, you know, during contest prep, and that can just mask like how lean you actually are because you're just holding all this uh, fluid. Um, yeah, and that can sort of make you look worse than what you actually are. And I think athletes and coaches really need to know that. And we talk quite a bit about that in the uh, ebook. And then the second measurement is your scale weight. So that's still a very useful proxy because we should be seeing on average over the weeks and month, scale weight going down if you're digging. Now, now that, remember, this is separate to peaking. If you're peaking, your scale weight will sort of come up and down a little bit more. Um, and in the early phases should be quite linear, but we're going to see some pretty wild fluctuations day to day in the digging phase, but we should see the trend, uh, coming down and we should be aiming to lose around 0.25 to 0.5% of body weight uh, per week. And I'm sure all of your listeners are pretty familiar with how they should use the scale. So I'm not going to labor that point too much, but the third one would be our girth measurements. So I think it's really useful in many cases, especially, uh, if people know how to take measurements correctly. Um, and they're not sort of, uh, you know, taking them one day, you know, flexed and then the next day they do their arms out like this or the following assessment. Sorry. Um, if you're taking very consistent, uh, girth measurements, so just using a tape measure around some key anatomical sites, so such as your biceps, you could use your quads, your waist, they're probably the primary three you want to use, um, just to see if you're getting smaller. Um, and that would be a pretty good size that you're losing fat tissue. Uh, but again, order of priorities. It's like visuals is number one. Mm-hmm. That should be the primary thing that dictates what decisions you make in regards to your diet and training uh, and cardio. Uh, then assessing your scale weight. If scale weight's coming down, but visuals, uh, you know, looking worse for wear, that 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 might be a good thing. That might mean that you're actually getting leaner uh, despite looking worse. Uh, so there is quite a bit of interplay between how we sort of discern which variable uh, and measurement to rely on over the other. But for the most part, um, I would look at the big two. Are you looking leaner and leaner and leaner? Should be looking flatter and flatter and flatter. Um, and are you getting lighter and lighter on the scale over time? So I hope I answered all that for you, Steve. No, you definitely did. And I love how comprehensive everything was there. And within the book, like reading through it, it is incredibly comprehensive, like some of the most comprehensive things I've read, even though there are other sources out there that really go into depth is some of these things that you said you, you kind of brought in that um, I don't think many people have necessarily kind of put that concept together, kind of this triangulation idea is really cool. Like, okay, so scale showing this, but what are these other things showing, if the majority showing the right thing, right. then cool. It's, it's a really, really nice kind of chapter. And I'm really excited for people to dig into the book and dig into everything that you guys no have been putting in intended. there. That was very clever. Did you mean that? <laughs> to dig into the book? Did you mean that? I I, uh, I want to say I did, did. <laughs> to dig, especially to dig into the digging phase, of course. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm so so excited for that and for you guys to come over. Um, what special kind of uh, I don't know uh, tricks do you have to present to all the guys that come to Bath? What surprise oh, you have? Oh, I've got a lot of surprises. 
if you like it when I make fun of Steve, oh no, you're really, <laughs> really going to like my presentation. I've been working on some of these videos that I've incorporated into <laughs> my slides of Steve Good that he, he doesn't even know I have this footage. I've been in cahoots with Charlotte for months and months now. He doesn't know <laughs> this yet. He knows now. But um, we've been working together to plot against Steve to really embarrass the shit out of him. I heard the last time he presented, uh, he was kind of like a thermometer and just kept getting redder and redder from <laughs> yeah. the bottom up. Um, so I really want to emulate uh, that effect with my presentation. So for the guys in Bath, I promise you it won't just be a very informative presentation. It will be the most comical fat loss contest prep presentation you have ever heard and at Steve's expense. So please come. I promise it will be enjoyable. Just gonna see me go bright red and then walk out, and I'm just like, I can't deal, I can't deal with this. <laughs> you just better hope I'm jet lagged, Steve, because I've been sleeping eight to ten hours a night, and wow, like my, that's a lot. my brain works. I told you this last week. Eight to ten's a lot. Um, I can't. Yeah, I'm still shocked. Yeah, I wish I was. I'm, I'm, I'm beating Steve at the sleep count, but that won't last very long. Once nationals finished, I'll be back to my old ways. But anyway, I hope to keep it up for when I come to Bath, because when I sleep a lot, man, it's like. I, for, I forgot how good sleep is for my brain. Like I'm, I'm just, yeah, my banter is like next level. <laughs> uh, so you better hope, pray to the the uh, contest prep gods that uh, I'm jet lagged. I will be. So guys, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Jacob for coming on. Um, he didn't rip into me too hard. So I look forward to that on the 14th of July. And we will look forward to seeing as many of your faces there as well. And not only are these groups of uh, the revive team as well absolutely i was just going to say not only are these great opportunities to kind of listen get information which i think there'd be something to learn for anyone um who is a client a, a coach or a competitor but also just networking um these are mm. some of the things i always enjoy coming to seminars for because you get to be with like-minded people and stanza fitness is a really cool gym i hear um i have a few friends yeah. who train over there so um yeah it sounds like it's a really good facility yeah and also uh we are giving all the attendees a copy of the ebook, um, which is pretty generous of you, Steve, um, because I know that uh, your ebooks, they're uh, very pricey and Pascal's time is uh, very, very precious. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, everyone gets an ebook and they get the uh, online contest prep course that we created uh, with 3DMJ, you and Pascal. We've got Brian Miner, um, Jackson Pios, who's also been on Revive Shunga and uh, myself, Lyndon, and Martin from JPS. So that's a really comprehensive yeah. course. Um, so there's a lot of uh, value packed in there. I hope uh, people can come, and I'd love to catch up with everyone, train, talk shit, banter, all that kind of jazz. I'm glad you brought up that physique course because I think that is a like it's it's huge. I can't believe Jacob was willing to give away that as well for all the people that attend because it, it's truly like a, a gold mine of information within there from such a range of it's like coaches. twenty hours. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> twenty hours of lectures, yeah. On contest prep. All contest prep. It's like, yeah, anyone who's a coach or a competitor, it's like uh yeah, a dream. Yeah. Cool. So guys, thank you for listening. We'll catch you soon. Take care.